0: of the Roden Fellows, hand-picked students from six historically black colleges and universities. They're young, they're smart, and they are living one of the most unique experiences in American higher education. I'm Bill Roden, and here are this week's Roden Fellows. I'm Kyla Wright from Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia.
1: I'm Paul Holster from Howard University in Washington, D.C.
0: Hello, everybody. I'm coming to you from New York City. Uh, before we get to the fellows, let, let's get to some of the sports news of the week. Tiger Woods, remember him? Tiger Woods is back at his first tournament in months. Uh, LeBron James was ejected from his first game ever. And Colin Kaepernick is getting lots of love. He won Sports Illustrated's Muhammad Ali Legacy Award. And Titans wide receiver Richard Matthews is going to be rocking custom-made cleats honoring Kaepernick. And, well, of course, you know all about his civil rights campaign. This brings us to one of the um, most important topics that we're going to be discussing today, and that's what the league is doing to help players support social justice causes instead of demonstrating during the national anthem. With us is undefeated senior writer, the great Jason Reed, to discuss another strategy from the NFL. He and Jim Trotter wrote a story last week about a potential plan for the National Football League to give nearly $100 million to social justice organizations that claim to support African Americans. The NFL says that it's partnering with players to do this, but not everybody's on board. Welcome to the show, Jason. Help us sift through all of this.
2: Hey, Bill, how you doing? Thank you.
0: It's all good, man, here in Manhattan. Every day is a good day. So, <laughs> hey, hey, Jason, I, I want to talk to you about the NFL's uh, proposal and the money's offered. But first, I think what's kind of on everybody's mind is just the string of uh, of men, particularly, who have been fired. I mean, Matt Lauer was fired, Charlie Rose, uh, Russell Simmons. I, mean, I think the statistic is something like, in total, 55 men have been accused since Harvey Weinstein's uh, uh, downfall. As you watch this, man, this what what's been your reaction to all this?
2: Well, Bill, I've never considered myself uh, a naive person. Mm. I think clearly I've known that there are things that happen in the workplace that aren't right. But I got to tell you, I'm really stunned by this. I, I just had no idea of the level of sexual harassment and mm. sexual assaults that take place in the workplace. I mean, I guess we have to say alleged in most of these situations because I don't know if in any of them they've outright been proven in a court of law but clearly from everything that we're hearing the stories one after another about just horrible behavior by men in the workplace it's really been stunning to me and no one's perfect so you know people make mistakes in their lives and people do things that they wish they could they wish they hadn't done or they wish they could take back but having said that I just think that when we see all of the things that we've seen over these past—I don't know what's, what has it been—three weeks, a month. Yeah. I mean, uh, since the Harvey Weinstein, uh, Harvey Weinstein initial allegations were made, and, and all the things that came out. I mean, I'm just really blown away. I, I've, I've told female friends of mine and female colleagues of mine that i just I, I just never knew this went on to this level, and you know I remember having a, a conversation with a with a good friend of mine who I work with uh Kelly Carter yeah. um, you know one of the baddest entertainment reporters in the country and this was a couple of years ago, and she was telling me women usually don 't report these things because of the culture because of fear of losing their job, fear of reprisal, and I just thought that that was crazy i i, I just couldn 't get my head wrapped around the fact that this stuff is, is not reported. And again, I, I knew these things happened to a certain degree, but I just never knew they happened to this level. And I was talking to Kelly the other day and I was like, you know, now I see what you're talking about. I just, mm. I, I had no idea.
0: Mm. You know, you, you went to USC and uh, I know you do a lot of mentoring and you're a Kappa. And, and so you're, you, you i am sure the organization has, you know, mentoring and all that kind of stuff. Do you talk to, or will you talk to young guys and if you do, what do you tell them? Because clearly the rules of engagement are changing. But what what do you tell young men particularly?
2: Well, Bill, uh, the young brothers who I've mentored through the years, like I always tell them, be professional. Mm. I tell them when you, when you get an internship, when you get that first job, uh, when you move up at a newspaper or a TV station, the things that we've always talked about is be professional. And... Obviously, people get together in the in the workplace. I mean, a lot of marriages come out of people working together. A lot of relationships come out of people working together. And, you know, you can take your shot if you're a guy in the workplace because it, it does happen. But if the vibe is not coming back at you, if, if it's definitely the, you know, the signals are that, no, I'm not interested, well, don't keep pursuing it because you can create a problem for yourself. Now, mm-hmm. I haven't talked to anybody recently even in the last month about this because most of the most of the guys i've mentored are now out there working you know they're no longer in school they've been in the business doing their thing and um i guess i'm i'm showing my age here but a lot of them are married with kids now <laughs> so this hasn't come up but i will say this bill if i anyone who i was mentoring now i would tell them look it, it's not just about if the uh of you know the the affection is not returned shut it down. It's your whole approach. I mean, because the rules definitely are not the same. You know, maybe before, you know, you might try to, you know, come talk to a woman, uh, and you know, maybe you might, like, get maybe closer than you should get get in terms of distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you, you know, keep coming around a little bit, you know, and keep trying, even if you were shot down. Now, I think it's just a case where you just got to move on. <laughs> and right. Clearly, with what 's going on right now, the culture is changing at least at least I hope it's changing. I hope this isn 't just a a blip, and then it 's going to go back to the way it used to be. I hope the culture is changing because as a as a father of a daughter mm. um, <laughs> you know I, I with all of this yeah i mean I, she 's a little girl, but I mean eventually you know God willing she 's going to grow up and go to college and mm. uh, become a professional like i wouldn 't want my daughter to be subjected to this, and mm. uh, you know I have a son, and it definitely changes. My thought process and the conversations i 'm going to have with him mm. as he gets older uh, so it it's definitely a, a new day it's a day that is long overdue um, and hopefully this isn't like I said a blip hopefully it's something that we really can take and make a positive change because the, this i mean this is this is unacceptable, and women don't deserve this
0: right. hey jason um let 's talk about the the n f l and the players uh It's been fascinating the n f l Offered. I mean, I'm hearing reports of anywhere from like 89 million to almost 100 million to the players for these social justice causes. I call it hush money, <laughs> and it's it's created a, a division. Yeah, just give me your take on this. Where where what are the sides? I mean, there's there's the Eric Reid side and the Kaepernick side, and there's a the Malcolm Jenkins side. Just what's your take taking. Where are we now?
2: Well, Bill, I think you pretty much summarize it really well. There there is a division. My colleague Jim Trotter from ESPN and myself we, the other night. We broke a story laying out what the NFL intends to do for players to partner with them in supporting their social justice causes. The NFL has laid out a proposal that could reach as much as $100 million. There's $73 million committed on the national level, and uh, the, the money's on the local level, uh, create a package that could be $89 million, uh, a baseline of $89 million, but then there are ways to increase it potentially to $100 million. So the NFL is putting up a lot of money in this proposal, which has to be ratified in uh, a you know, vote of owners at the annual meetings in March. It's a lot of money. Now, there is no specific quid pro quo saying, in, in, the, in, the contract, in the in the proposal language, saying that, okay, we're giving you this money, therefore you guys will no longer demonstrate during the National Anthem. That language doesn't exist. But clearly, the league believes that by doing this, it's creating an environment where players will no longer feel they, they need to protest, because the league is offering a lot of money to help them basically improve things in the African-American community. Now, there are players, uh, led by Eric Reid, who are not happy with the way the negotiations occurred with the players' coalition led by Malcolm Jenkins and Anquan Bolden, Eric and Mm -hmm. other players, Michael Thomas from the uh, Miami Dolphins, Kenny Stills from the Miami Dolphins, Russell Okun from the uh, Los Angeles Chargers, have come out and said that they're splitting with the Players' Coalition because they don't like the way things have been handled. And they put out statements saying that they don't like the, the, the process, they don't think it's been transparent enough. And again, uh, my reporting with my colleague Jim Trotter from ESPN, we laid basically all this out in the story we broke about the situation. It's gotten kind of ugly. Clearly, the, the the players who have split with the Players' Coalition have major issues with the way things have been handled. Uh, Malcolm Jenkins and Anquan Bolin, they've gone on the offensive talking about the fact that, no, this whole thing has been transparent. There's kind of a backdrop to this whole thing, Bill. Colin Kaepernick, the guy who started the whole movement by sitting and then kneeling last year, he's been excluded from this thing, too. He's broken with Malcolm Jenkins. So uh, on the one hand, it it looks like this money could really have a positive effect on changing some things or helping to change some things in the African-American community. Unfortunately, there has been this big break, and it it has gotten ugly.
0: Yeah, hey, hey, hey Jason. Listen, I know you got a role, man, um, but uh, just great work on this. You, you, and uh, and Jim have really been uh, just doing great work, and not this, but almost every other hot story that comes up. But this is fascinating. You guys have. Uh, been great on it, and I look forward to having you back because I'd really like to hear more of your thoughts and your insight and your reporting on what clearly is an unfolding issue. But thanks so much, man, for breaking from a really busy schedule to join us.
2: Hey, anytime, brother. For you, you know that.
0: Hey, Amen. You're the best. All right. Bye bye now. Bye-bye. We'll go on a short break. When we come back, we'll get Josina Anderson's take on the issue, as well as her take on all of the sexual harassment and assault allegations coming out. Stay tuned. If you're just now tuning in, you're listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. I'm Bill Roden, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Kyle Wright and Paul Holston. We just spoke with Jason Reed, senior NFL writer at The Undefeated, about the NFL's controversial proposal to donate money to, quote, causes considered important to African-American communities (laughs) in an effort to stop the anthem protest. Now we're continuing the conversation with Josina Anderson, national NFL writer and reporter for ESPN. We'll also get her thoughts on all of the sexual assault allegations coming out against major Hollywood and media executives. Josina Anderson, welcome to uh, HBCU Thank 468. Thank you
3: for that warm welcome and having me on your podcast. I appreciate it. Now, <laughs> I do not feel the same way about you. So whatever you need, I'm right
0: here. <laughs> she is, uh, She, you know, you're the best. So, the news of the day, of course, is all the sexual assaults almost like every day. <laughs> sexual assault allegations coming out against uh, major Hollywood and media executives. Matt Lauer was fired. Uh, Def Jam Records founder Coach Russell Simmons has stepped down. Charlie Rose. I, I want to get into that, but the first thing I want to ask you, just your reaction to um, the recent news about the NFL's offered um I think it's like eighty-nine million dollars. I, I, I call it hush money, but again, that's that's the editorial and me coming out. But I just want to get you're on the ground. You're in the locker room. It seems like there's a little division. There's, you know, Eric Reed has said, respectively, is kind of divorcing himself, you know, from the group that was sort of formed by um, from from Malcolm Jenkins and that group. Well, and Tom Bolden. Yeah, and Bolden. What's your what's your take, uh, Josie? Again, you know all these these players. You talk to them all the time. Your immediate reaction to the, the money Jenkins saying that he's gonna take it and not raise not demonstrate it anymore, what, what's your take, Jocena?
3: Well on one hand, you know, you're trying to compare it to where everything was before at the beginning, you know, where there was no discussion, there was more of a divide between the owners and the players mm-hmm. and there was no money earmarked for anything. So when you do that type of comparison, then you try to see where the progress is. I believe that they're talking about at least $89 million earmarked over a seven-year period nationally and locally. That would include going to organizations such as the United Negro College Fund and Dream Corps and the remaining 50% going to the Players Coalition. Uh, and then reports came out that you know some of the players were expressing concern that they were just allocating some of that money that was already earmarked for their other causes, such as... Play 60 breast cancer awareness and shuffling that money to, you know, the criminal justice and social causes that were under the Players Coalition offer. And then the NFL just released a statement today saying that that's not the case um, and that it is not, you know, the same money and it is new money and all that other stuff. And I understand the sentiment of it feeling like, You know, it's just hush money. It's just a trade-off to get them to stop protesting, and that seems to be the sentiment of Eric Reed and uh, the safety down uh, with the Miami Dolphins and and Russell Okun and whoever else who hasn't come out. And I definitely understand that, too, but, you know, the league has tried to say that it's not trying to de-incentivize these players from continuing to do that, or there's not an outright request. We saw Olivier Vernon saying, that he's still, you know, going to kneel. and matter of fact, I was tweeting about that this morning. So, it's, you know, it's very difficult without being exactly at the negotiating table, especially with two distinct opinions about exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. I guess in this situation, it's kind of a long-winded way of saying, I kind of see both sides so long as that there is a new money that is coming. It's not taking away from other causes. You know, and I heard Bomani Jones talking on First Take this morning, saying, "You know, well, what is the money going to the United Negro College Fund really helping as far as the original causes of why they were kneeling?" So, you know, I, I, it's like all of, all of those are valid points. Right. But I think my underlining point is just that I wish that all the players could be on the same page because you don't want to see them disconnected or not. All together, unified, particularly as we get closer to the players having to renegotiate their CBA. <laughs>
1: right, mm-hmm. that's a good point. And just want just want to follow up with that, Jacina. This is Paul from Howard. So, do you feel that although these uh, the league is and the owners are donating these monies to these specific organizations, do you feel in a devil's advocate type way that it's also trying to, like you said, separate them?
3: Yeah, I don't think that the goal is to go in there and let's try to separate the players. I think the goal is to try to get them all on one accord for the purpose of, you know, getting them to stop to protest. I do think that that is their primary
0: (laughs) um,
3: objective. I definitely agree with that. I don't think the objective is let's show how we can conquer and divide the players. If it just so happens that that is a result of their primary purpose, then that's secondary or tertiary. And it doesn't mean that, you know, for the purpose of trying to achieve this goal that they're not doing things that are helpful in terms of using their platform, raising awareness, adding money. And And I heard Gomani's point this morning that if their heart is not into it, you know, then what does it really matter? You know, he would rather see more meaningful presence by the owners, you know, at police stations or, you know, along with people who, you know, lost their lives and, you know, showing up at, I don't know, community assemblies where they're discussing bail reform and all these other things, but it really comes down to how you measure progress and how you measure improvement and what your total definition of that, because I think that's why there's such a myriad of opinions, because everyone's scope of progress is different.
0: Right. And, and, you know, I, I, we want to switch gears to the harassment thing, but, I, you know, even going back to the civil rights movement, you know, the, the myth is that everybody was in lockstep. Well, everybody was not in lockstep. You know, you had a lot of powerful personalities and you had a lot of debate and and not everybody was always in agreement. Uh, the idea was that we were kind of into freedom and, and progress and break, breaking down barriers. So, I mean, how difficult or intriguing has this uh, been for you to cover from the time Kaepernick took the knee until the news of, you know, uh, of the day about the the NFL's uh, uh, offer of money.
3: I'm always interested in speaking up on things that illuminate injustice or disproportionate way in which people are, you know, treated fairly versus unfairly because I am an advocate for fairness. And a lot of times when I've talked on the air, people have said, oh, you know, you you speak so much for Kaepernick, you're speaking up for him. And it's not really – about kaepernick the individual it really is about the cause and the movement you know i would say these things if it was kaepernick or not kaepernick mm-hmm. um matter of fact out of all that i've covered over my you know 14 15 year career i think i've maybe talked to him twice <laughs> you know so right, it's not right. as if i have this you know compared to maybe some other athletes that i covered this long rapport so it's not really about him individually mm-hmm. although i do believe that what is happening to him is real. And I do believe that there is a unified concern about, you know, bringing him on to a team that goes beyond his production, which is not fair when you look at, you know, some of the backups that have gotten opportunities before him. And that's not right, Mm -hmm. because if it can happen to him, it really can happen in any sphere, any profession yeah. where any of us are involved, whether it be, you know, journalism, whether it be sports, whether it be anything. You would never you want it to be as much of a meritocracy as possible. And mm-hmm. for people not to be cutting off their nose to bite their face and using lesser talent out of fear of bringing him on or because they you know, feel like that is. You know, kind of the lead calling to keep them out, or mm-hmm. whatever, and you know the individual sentiment may be per owner per club. Mm-hmm.
0: Speaking of your career, just shifting gears a little bit, um, how sexual assault allegations have come out over the what, like the last two months? Um, when you have been interviewing, you know, players and coaches, and you know you've been in the locker room, and you might be the only woman in there. Have you ever received any unwanted attention, or have you ever been harassed personally? And if so, like how did you handle that?
3: a couple of instances at the beginning of my career when you're trying to establish yourself and people don't know who you are. I mean, I can think of one instance when I was very young and I came into, you know, a locker room and some of the athletes threw a towel, you know, in my direction and were laughing about it. And, I, and honestly, I really can't think of anything that rises to that level. That was so long ago and it was very early in my career and people didn't know who... You know, you were and you hadn't really achieved a certain level of just, uh, you know, a certain level in your path for your career. I think I try to make everything about, you know, what what I know and the content and the job first and everything is kind of secondary after that. And I think once you've established a rapport and, you know, a presence, a reputation about you, where people know that you know what you're talking about, all of that really is kind of dissipates because that's what you're known for. And so, you know, it's very rare, I can't even think of any recent instance where that has been the case. Now, you know, whether there are other things that have to do outside of, uh, you know, sexism, or, you know, whether it has to do with uh, your your race or people being really vigilant over you, actually it's on the flip side because you do your job so well and they're hyper-focused on you in terms of how you're moving through, the locker room, and I'm talking about like a PR staff because they, right. you know, you have reputation for breaking news and all that other stuff, and they're keeping that probably happens more. Yeah, right. You know, than, than anything, rather than it being anything from the players, that I feel has to do with my uh, gender.
1: And I, I definitely, this is Paul from Howard. I definitely, I remember the training camp, the interaction between yourself and, and Giants, Odell Beckham, how you just kept. You know, he I could see the respect from the player given to you as, you know, one one of the few black uh, female reporters, but also him being very respective in answering your questions, you know. How long do you feel it took you to get the respect of athletes and coaches and staff, you know, throughout the league?
3: Um, I mean I've been like I said, I've been doing it fourteen, fifteen years. It takes time. You know, one of the things that I learned while working in Washington D C and you know, some of the colleagues who obviously I greatly respect and who are senior to me and, and it taught me a lot of the things I know was, you know, not to come into a press conference and feel the need to you know, ask every question. Hmm. I mean, you know, when I used to cover uh, sports in D.C., we would sit in the back and, and barely ask any questions. And hmm. I remember being like 22 and 23 and that making an impression on me, like, you know, not ask anything. And then I would watch all the reporters leave the locker room and then he would stay back and have one-on-one conversations with Michael Jordan or Larry Hughes and, you know, Tyron Lewis these times when they were – um, you know members of the Washington Wizards, and that kind of being the beginning. whether it was him, whether it was Steve Weiss or uh, John Mitchell or all these people. Uh, you know, Bill and yourself, who who have been around, and you watch how they work. That's how you begin to notice the beginnings of how you become an insider, and also just the importance of observing the room and, and taking notes on how a coach will answer the questions and who he respects in the room and why. And, you know, how questions are asked and what people respond to. So when I first came to Denver, Mike Shanahan was the coach. I didn't speak up in that press conference for a while, not out of fear, but because I was taking mental notes. And then, you know, once I started asking questions, and that was the end of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. But I took my time, you know, with people. Uh, you know, I didn't really start talking to Odell maybe until maybe about two two years into him, you know, being here And really even more so by the end of last year and this year because I took my time with him. I don't Mm. rush every athlete as individual. So I think that that's really important. And then not having fear in terms of asking athletes for their contact, but doing it in the right way and making sure that they know that, you know, when you're calling that you are calling for business purposes and to follow up with them and then to respect their time when you do so that you're not taking, you know, too long and they remember that. So it's not a drag when they see your. Name on the uh,
0: phone. Speaking of respecting your time, I, I know you've got a role, but what do you think about? We talked about all the, the sexual harassments, uh, one after the other, coming out. Knowing what you know, are you surprised by this? Are you surprised that there's so many? Um, do you think this is just the tip of the iceberg?
3: No, I don't think I'm surprised. I'm just glad that there was a moment, whether it was Rose McGowan or whoever, that was able to, you know, create a scenario where people felt more comfortable to speak up. But on the same side of that I hope that everyone that is speaking up is doing so in the right way and the right intention because it you know everybody deserves for it to be fair on both sides. You just hope that, you know, there's some news that has come out where, you know, some people haven't been on the up and up and the majority obviously seems to be and you want to respect these women and what they've been through. And I I like, you know, even the statement from Russell Simmons where he is doing his best it seems to recognize that he has Made flaws and it doesn't matter how big you are or how high you've achieved in your career. You know you have to respect people and respect people's bodies, and that is important. Mm-hmm.
0: To 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 I, I don't know if you have brothers or you're just your friends and uh, maybe even young athletes. You know what are the new rules of engagement? What do you? What's the advice that you can give to people? Because clearly the rules of engagement have to change. Maybe you've seen them changing already. I mean, another I think that everybody
3: yeah. needs to be more just more vigilant of people's personal spaces and the the words that you use, word choice, so that, you know, you're not offending people, particularly when you're in a space. you know, Um, because right now people are looking for it, people are more aware of it, they're more confident to speak up, and not everybody has the same comfort definition, and so you just have to be whatever you think that rule is, you have to probably do less just to be on the safe
0: side. (laughs) <laughs> that's right well listen our I, I guest has been the, the the great Josina anderson she's the uh national uh nfl reporter nfl insider I, actually doesn't dis- distinctions don't really do justice to everything that she does in the industry uh but jocena thank you so much um have so much respect and admiration for you and uh just really appreciate you sharing some of your insights with uh with us on uh, HBCU. By the way, were you ever tempted you grew up in DC, were you tempted to go to Howard?
3: Uh well my parents did and I just think that because of the proximity of that university to where I came up, I was just more interested in being a little further away from my parents.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there there <laughs> hey. So you went all the way to the University of North uh North Carolina and Chapel Hill, but you were you were a runner, you were a sprinter. Yeah. So you yeah. sprinted yeah. to Chapel Hill. To
1: Carolina.
3: Yes. Nothing wrong with that. And it was only, you know, wasn't too far away from being home. So, you know, I I definitely enjoyed my experience going to that university. Had the time of my life, especially my first couple of years there. So I always tell anyone, hey, listen, if you didn't go to Carolina, we'll still accept you on the train.
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey Jocina, thank you so much. This, this has been just truly wonderful.
3: Yes. Thank you, guys.
1: Thank you for your time.
3: Thank you. Okay, take care.
0: Before we close out the show, we leave you with a few things to consider. Those of us who attended black colleges and universities are horrified by allegations of harassment and rape that have emerged at Morehouse and Spelman Colleges in Atlanta, Georgia. Horrified, but not surprised as the Roden Fellows have reported for the undefeated throughout the year, HBCU campuses are not immune from sexual harassment and abuse. In some cases, the threat may be more acute because these campuses lack the resources to provide adequate protection. There may be a tendency to protect administrators who have been in place far too long and where an environment of intimidation encourages silence. How do we create a safe, harassment-free environment on campus? And how do we protect students from those who would abuse their power? Where the old boys network, which now includes women, goes unpoliced. There should be no statute of limitation for sexual predators. Politicians should be run out of office. Educators should not be allowed into the classroom when allegations become fact. Leadership must make it clear at big campuses and small, predominantly white and historically black, single sex and co-ed, that a tidal wave of reckoning is coming for all of those who have abused and who continue to abuse their power. Thanks for listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows podcast. This show is produced by Aaron Mathewson, Tony Chow, and Martin O'Neill, are in the control room. Special thanks to David Cummings. Get all of the HBCU 468 podcasts, as well as All Day. What are those? And Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast, and don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows podcast. This show is produced by Aaron Mathewson. Tony Chow and Martin O'Nabu are in the control room. Special thanks to David Cummings. Get all of the HBCU 468 podcast as well as all day. What are those? And morning roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast. And don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everybody.